Hey there, you're turning into the premier episode of On Background. I'm Fred Delory, and if you've been around the Canadian political scene, you might recognize my touch from several conservative campaigns. From managing national crusades to serving the highest echelons of our political leadership, I've been in the trenches orchestrating and strategizing. But there's always been more to the story, the kind that doesn't make the evening news. On Background is our way of pulling back that curtain. As we embark on this podcast journey, I wanted to kick things off by setting the stage for what promises to be an epic battle in the years ahead between Trudeau and Polyev, two towering figures in our political arena. And to make things even more interesting, I'm starting this journey with my frenemy, if you will, Alex Kohut of Spark Insights. A force in liberal politics, Alex was there with Justin Trudeau, experiencing the political roller coasters from the best seat in the House, serving as a pollster at both PMO and in federal campaigns for the Liberal Party. So Alex and I have been on opposing sides, but today we're in the same room. So grab your favorite drink and cozy up. The political landscape is buzzing with the, the clash of the two titans, Trudeau versus Polyev. Um, and is it Polyev's undeniable charisma or Trudeau's dwindling aura uh, shaping the current narrative? So let's go on background and find out. Hey, man, how's it going? Good. I, br- I brought some cookies. Uh, oh, my awesome. peace offering. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I know you and I were on opposite ends of the uh, of the campaign last time from two different, uh, you were in the red room, I was in the blue room. Uh, so I really appreciate you coming in here and having this chat with me. Well, that makes for the best conversations. So you have, uh, I understand you have some names you wanted to run by as potential names for this podcast. What do you got? Yeah, well, uh, I know we went with on background. Uh, I've been looking a lot into uh, AI in research, AI in polling. There's some really fun things happening in the U.S. and that sort of thing. Uh, but just out of curiosity, I said, hey, ChatGPT, give me a name for a Canadian podcast run by this really intelligent guy who works for the wrong side, huh. who, uh, you know, is a political insider. He's going to get behind the scenes. He's going to talk to people from different perspectives, and he's going to have a fun, casual take on what's going on in politics these days in Canada. And he gave me a list of 10. Uh, I think almost all of them are unusable. And they might be playing a little bit too much into Canadian stereotypes. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think ChatGPT might have an anti-Canadian bias. Uh, but I can give you a few of them here. Uh, they've got, let's see, True North Decision Dominion. I think True North's already taken, though. Right. Uh, they have a boot face, secret Canadian oh, strategies. <laughs> is this based out of Manitoba? <laughs> I mean, Canadian stereotypes. It, this is ChatGPT. It's not me. Uh, and on that on that topic, uh, they suggested the Great White Cabinet Shuffle, which I think uh, might be a Doug Ford Cabinet Shuffle. Oh, <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not nice at all. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Uh, my pers- my personal favorites are they suggested Moose, Mounties, and Ministerial Moves, and then uh, the A-Team, but with E-H. Moose, Mounties, so that's all play on the liberals and all the scandals that they're involved in. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. No comment. This is on background, right? Yes, 100%. So you decided on, on background is the name. Do you want to talk about what that actually means for people who are not necessarily in the, the journalism bubble? Right. Look, in, in a lot of, in politics, when you have people out there talking, it's a lot of BS. Uh, so look, on background in journalist speak means you're just you're talking to a reporter you don't want to be named you don't want your name associated to it so you're speaking more freely you're telling stories to this to uh, to a journalist uh, and you see it all the time in news stories anonymous store uh, anonymous sources uh, and they're giving it on background so that's what I want this podcast to be obviously we're on the record obviously this is recorded obviously we want lots and lots of people to listen to it but I want people to have that feeling 
that this is an inside conversation. That's what you're listening to. That's what you're hearing. And that's what you're getting out of it. That again, you and I, uh, we're at war with each other two years trying to uh, help our teams win an election. And here we are two years later in the same room chatting about it. This is unusual uh, in, in politics. This is not something that happens. Uh, so I want us to, you know, let's sit up, let's have a drink and let's, uh, let's chat about what was and what will be. Have you ever been on background as a source? I've been on background a lot. Uh, I am a former national spokesperson for the Conservative Party, so uh, you know they, those were authorized leaks. Uh, so I, uh, I'll just say that. I, I definitely never have. This is my first time. <laughs> I find that very hard to believe, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So seeing as you have gone on background, and I'm I'm taking the position that I haven't. Uh, what, what, when do you make that decision about what you would leak without attribution to uh, a reporter, what you would talk about on background or off the record? Right. There's various scenarios that you look at. One of my favorite stories uh, when I was director of communications for the Conservative Party was when we were actually uh, charged by Elections Canada, the party was and a number of people on, um, we were charged for uh, the, the, what was known as the in and out scandal. Uh, so we were going to be charged the following day. We were notified of this. So I went out on background and spoke to 10 different news outlets and told them all the same story, which was an accurate story. It was true. Like we're going to be charged. Here's the, it was a very minor uh, charge and we were going to beat it. Uh, but I was able to tell that to 10 different outlets and exactly at 10 o'clock that night, that was what I gave them as the, uh, as the, the embargo, if you will. Uh, and at 10 o'clock, 10 stories from 10 outlets from across the country are the exact same story and it worked lovely except one outlet misinterpreted what I had told them and thought that I was given an exclusive so they were very very pissed off at me because they thought it was an exclusive so they outed me they put my name on it so nine out of ten outlets said uh, on background a conservative source said this one outlet said Fred Delory said this uh, which was a bit embarrassing but at the same time uh, a great learning experience it's interesting that this is your favorite story about <laughs> getting charged and then and then getting well, outed look, by the media. Look, uh, look, it's it's a great learning opportunity. So in politics, you the 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 more you learn, the better you get at campaigns. That is that is very true, and uh, I think we are learning from talking to each other as well. I think a very interesting part of having these conversations across party lines is that you get to see a different way of working on things and a different way of. Uh, of making these types of political decisions behind the scenes, which is, sounds like is what this podcast is going to be about. Uh, you're the pollster. You're seeing these numbers right now. We're seeing Trudeau um, at record lows, and we're seeing Polyev at record highs. I've never seen anything uh, quite like this in my in my lifetime, uh, a, a Canadian federal politician, at least on the conservative side, this popular. What's going on? Uh, certainly, yeah, you are pulling me in at a time when, when uh, the liberal side has not seen numbers this low really since 2015. Uh, when, when Tom Mulcair was a potential future prime minister, uh, and things changed pretty quickly back in 2015. You know, there's a chance things could always change as well. You know, I think as a pollster, I think one of the first things I always have to say is is to remind people polls are not predictions. I think there's a good chance if an election was tomorrow that the Conservative Party would be winning pretty comfortably. Uh, polls are having a pretty broad consensus on that. Uh, but you never know. Things do change. Uh, you know, when I started working at, at the prime minister's office in kind of the honeymoon period after 2015, we actually had a lot of polls that had 
uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals at over 50%. I, I saw one, I was going back and looking, that was 55% in 2016, wow. uh, which is pretty incredible. You know, I don't think it's it's realistic that the Conservatives will ever be that high. Uh, that would be very problematic the, for Liberals. We don't have the voter universe, right, to ever right. get to that level. It's yeah. just not, that, that's a lot of the things, the polling I've seen in this country, when you really break it down, uh, it seems to be you have a split of 60% progressive, 40% conservative is roughly the numbers. And I, I don't know if you have uh, anything to add to that. But it, and it feels like, you know, that 40-ish, um, maybe a little bit above it once in a while we can get to is our high water mark, which I feel like we're at now. Yeah, I feel that's about right. And I think conservative voters in Canada, at least, uh, are a lot more loyal. Uh, you know, liberals don't necessarily have the same grassroots group. We do have a grassroots group, but it's more about the collaborative style of politics and kind of the the liberal brand than necessarily a policy base that you see uh, being very aggressive and advocating for things at conservative policy conventions or on the other side right. at, at NDP policy conventions. So that means, you know, we certainly have a lot of potential for growth as the more central centrist party, I guess you could say, although we're fairly center left. Uh, but also, you know, when things go badly, as we saw before 2015, there is that potential to, to bottom out, which I hope is not going to happen in the near future. But the polling numbers are are certainly way down from from what we've seen in, in the past. And you can see a larger range for sure with the liberals uh, from when things are good and to when things are bad than you see with the conservatives who have that kind of steady 25 to, well, maybe 40 percent when you look at some of the polls that are happening recently. Right. We have a real base, I think, that's locked in where the liberals float a bit. Um, but on the other side of it, again, that 60% of progressives in this country, you're sharing that with the NDP and the Bloc and the Greens. And it's it'll be interesting the next election if there's a, a, co- a coalition of sorts of voters that move into one direction, whether it's the liberals or the NDP, um, based on a fear of Polyev, which is very possible, right? And that I w- every election, I remember the last two elections, we were so close. We felt we were winning up until the last three days, both 2019, 2021, until our vote collapsed to, uh, sorry, not our vote collapsed, the NDP vote collapsed to the liberals. Uh, and that put them over the top. And that would be a, a, certainly a fear of, uh, of what could happen again here. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's always the question. Uh, and I think that's the big question that I have when I look at polling right now is the Liberals haven't done you know, much work so far to define Polyev negatively. Uh, there hasn't been that kind of contrast piece. So when that comes out, whether it happens in the near term or whether that happens during an election campaign, we certainly saw a lot of people were voting against Andrews here and were voting against Aaron O'Toole in the last mm. couple of elections. Right now, when you talk to Canadians, you don't necessarily see a, a large group of people who are saying, well, I'd be open to voting Conservative, but not Pierre Polyev. Uh, right now, it seems that among the general public, he's got a pretty positive brand. People are liking right. kind of the new look of the Conservative Party, and the Liberals have not been been very active in doing their own advertising and in having their own kind of message for how they're going to frame the new political leader on the Conservative side. So I think it's coming, uh, and I think that is why you know I wonder how soft, how strong these current Conservative numbers are, because. Right. You know, usually a, a generic conservative candidate is going to pull better in Canada than a specific one because there there usually is some baggage on candidates. And maybe maybe people won't find baggage on Pierre Polyev when they start looking at him more closely. But I, I feel like there are some things there that Canadians are uncomfortable with uh, and they haven't really been highlighted so far. So as the Liberals start to try to do that, we'll see if that is actually something that will persuade people or if people will just say, OK, it's time for change. This guy is is definitely an embodiment of change. He's clearly going to do right. politics differently, and they're willing to to accept a few things that might make them, you know, 
plug their nose and, and vote conservative anyway, uh, or it might make, or maybe some, there's some NDP voters on the other side who just the strategic voting pitch, they'll say, we've done this a few times already. You know, I don't want to necessarily vote for Justin Trudeau. I've, I've done it despite what I wanted to do in the last couple of elections. And I don't think he's, he's deserving of my strategic vote anymore. So we'll have to see as things get down to the wire, whether people are actually pulling the trigger and making those decisions and, and what the motivations are, what the incentives are, what the, the fears are that are leading people when they're making that decision in the ballot box. Well, that's what we saw last spring, right? Like we saw the conservatives take a good poll lead. Uh, and then we had four by-elections happening at the same time. And there was no actual uptick in conservative support in any of those by-elections, which to me was concerning. It shows that, you know, we may be doing well in the polls, and I'm saying concerning as a conservative here, where when you're actually in that ballot box, though, people don't seem to be marking the X for us. Um, Now, I said that then, and I wrote an article on it and raised, you know, I called it raising red flags. And it felt like the conservatives took it to heart because they spent a lot of time uh, this summer uh, putting out very positive advertisements with Anna Poliev voicing a number of them and Pierre doing them. And, and they spent millions of dollars on this. The biggest, I, I can't think of a time uh, a political parties ever spent that much money on a pre-writ advertisement campaign this far out from an election, uh, which I think was very smartly done by them. I think it was a very a wise decision. Uh, and we're seeing it in the numbers. And to your point earlier about where, you know, the liberals coming, uh, you know, something may be coming down soon from them. I feel right now the conservatives are the only political party in Canada campaigning, and they're going full tilt. They're running million-dollar ads. Polyev is touring the country. I know he's he's all over the place and and pulling out for conservatives record number of people, and they're they're bringing in new people. It's not just the the base. It's not just typical conservatives. So they're really opening up something there. But I feel they're alone. They're the only ones on the campaign trail right now. The liberals do have the burden of governing. They are out there doing that. But I don't find they're, they're, there's no overarching narrative I'm seeing from the liberals. There's no real, you know, they're, we're seeing the housing stuff develop. We're seeing it come out. But there's no, uh, you know, I remember back to 2008 when we almost lost government to the coalition of the liberals, the NDP, and the Blockists. And the economy dipped. Uh, there was a big recession then. And we came out with the Canada's Economic Action Plan, and we hammered it for two years. Every single announcement we did, all of our focus was through that lens. And when the 2011 campaign came on, we had a, we had a built-in narrative that was there, and we just, unro- we just unrolled it, um, and then contrasting with our liberal opponents. Um, who weren't in it for Canada, as we said then. And, and famously, you know, we won the only majority uh, we've won since 1988, uh, and it worked well. And I find the Liberals, you know, they're doing, they've got, you know, they're big on climate change, they're, they're, they seem to be working hard on the housing, but there's no overarching narrative or story. What do you think that is? And like, w- will we see anything like that ever come? And have they really had that? Like, other, other than the, two, the 2015 election win, uh, the Liberals don't seem to have been really been telling a big story that I think they could be telling. Yeah, I think that's the thing you want to be looking at a few years in advance. You know, as a pollster, especially a pollster who has worked for the Liberal Party and PMO, I think people always assume that what I would do in those roles would be looking at horse race polls, looking at, you know, conservatives are at 33% today versus 31% yesterday. What does that mean? You know, you do a little bit of that. That's kind of the candy you get as a pollster. Uh, you want to have those opportunities to be able to target based off of what support levels look like. Uh, but most of what you do is looking at underlying things and looking at where things will be in two years. So when I look at what parties are doing strategically, what's really of interest to me is seeing what the long-term plan is, who has that in place. It seems very clear the conservatives have a long-term plan. They have an idea for what brand of Pierre Polyev they want 
people to see across the country. They seem to have an idea of where they're targeting to get their extra votes. They seem to have an idea of where they're prioritizing where to mobilize voters. They have an idea of which uh, policies they want to be front window. Obviously, they're talking a lot about housing. They're talking about the, co- the cost of living. I think that will continue until the next election. Uh, even if the next election is, is two years out, there's a good chance that those will still be high-profile issues, and they're they're laying the groundwork to say these are things that are priorities for our parties. Uh, liberals are definitely going to have that type of thing as well. They're going to be sitting down right now at the center, and they're going to be having discussions about you know, what is our brand positioning for the next election, and, and who do we need to highlight, what messages need to be front and center in a platform. But I don't see it right now, uh, and I think it is fair to say that in, in 2019 and 2021, Liberals were not as good as they were in 2015 at this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very good at branding conservative leaders. I think people turned against Sheer and people turned against O'Toole because a lot of sunlight was put on on some things that Canadians didn't like about them. Um, but we can't necessarily rely on that on the liberal side. Uh, I would like to see uh, you know a long-term vision coming out and you know the strategy starting to to come into the light with with advertising campaigns and with a message of. You know, this is why the government is still ambitious. This is what the government's still trying to accomplish. This is why we need more time. Because uh, it is very hard when you've been in government for eight years. Uh, it could be longer than that by the next election to say, look, we still have things that we need to accomplish. Because uh, Canadians are either going to say, well, why didn't you do this already? Uh, or, you know, we don't necessarily believe you're going to do this if you right. haven't done it. Right. Uh, so they need to be able to find some things they can point to and say either, you know, you trust us and we've done a good job managing these things. Let us continue. Or, you know, we have a new vision, we have a new exciting thing that we're trying to do, uh, and we will do if there's a new election. I have not necessarily seen that in in the last, you know, there's some exciting things in the last few platforms, but if you compare it to the 2015 platform where there was really, really big attention-grabbing things, uncompromising, ambitious ideas from the liberals, you know, I think uh, it might be time to get back to some of that stuff just to get people's attention and show that it's still a government that can be on the cutting edge, on the leading edge with new policy ideas. Yeah, look, in thinking back to the 2021 campaign, I remember you guys called it, you were going for the majority government, the polls had you guys in that neighborhood, and but it felt the first two to three weeks of the campaign, you guys didn't even realize the election had been called. We were, again, the only ones campaigning. Um, Aaron O'Toole came out with a very strong platform with uh, Canada's recovery plan, and we saw those numbers for him, uh, where he went from trailing by uh, massive numbers to taking a lead. Uh, and then you guys turned it on those last few weeks. You guys like stepped up. Uh, so be curious now if you guys do that, if the Liberals do that now, or if it's going to be one of those things where um, they wait till an election again before they really unleash. And again, no one's voting now. We're two years away potentially from an election. <laughs> There's a lot of runway here. But at the same time, um, you know, it feels like it's baking in in some areas, and I think that'd be concerning. The demographic yeah. shift is what's really jumping out at me too right now. Like, you know, we knew Polyev always had uh, issues with women voters. That gap seems to be erasing. Young voters, as a conservative activist my whole life, seeing us leading in those demographics and young people voting is blowing me away. How real do you think that could be, and is that something that we can maintain, or is that, uh, again, just people uh, parking right now? Yeah, so we've done some research recently that's going to be coming out, so I'm kind of scooping myself, um, but we we asked Canadians about uh, the Pierre Polyev ad that his wife was was narrating that talks about him as a family man, and, and people had a very positive reaction to that. I think that's the kind of message that, you know, if you're looking at suburban families in the 905, some of these places where the Conservatives need to win seats where they've struggled in the last few elections, and you look at 
mothers uh, in particular, that kind of middle-aged woman demographic, uh, you know, there's plenty of potential for growth there because they like that kind of a message. And it, it is very much a different look for Polyev. You know, I do wonder if he can maintain that. I'm not sure if that is authentically who he is. Um, you know, I, I think he likes a fight. Uh, and if the new brand is that he's a conciliatory family man, uh, you know, he cares. I'm sure he does care about people. Uh, but when you put him in, in when he's uh, in the House of Commons and he's you know, throwing smoke bombs and stuff, that's probably not the first thing that's going to come to mind. So I think if this this new brand and look for him sticks, uh, that has a real potential to win over some of those mm-hmm. you know, blue liberals who have been toying with the idea of going conservative. Uh, but there's also a scenario where if he doesn't, if he isn't disciplined about continuing that brand, then maybe some of these advertising campaigns are wasted because by the time the election comes around, uh, people are thinking about, uh, you know, a different different type of brand with him, especially if the liberals are are going more aggressively on on some of the other things that he's been talking about. Uh, in terms of youth, you know, I think that is that's something that would keep me up at night if I was still doing polling for the liberals right now. Right. Uh, we did very well in 2015. Uh, in many ways, that was a huge contributor to the fact that we were able to get a majority government there. Uh, and really, ever since, we've been doing a lot worse with young voters. Um, I don't think people realize how much the uh, the drop off was between 2015 and even 2019, and especially 2021. We haven't been doing that well with young people. Uh, you know, even places like Quebec, where we've done very well, we've done very poorly among young people in Quebec, which seems to be a fight between the NDP and the the Conservatives more so than the the Liberals and the Bloc, who are competitive among older voters in Quebec. Uh, so I, I worry about that. I worry about that for for more than just uh, kind of the political. Uh, voting side of things as well. You know, I think it's difficult to attract young staffers to the Liberal Party right now because we're losing that generation. Uh, and I think it is absolutely something that if the Liberals don't have a youth-focused message, which is hard to do in government, government's not a very young institution, and and, and uh, young people are always looking for change. It's hard to sell change when you're in government. Uh, so I think it is it is difficult to make those those outreach things. But we need to be Liberals need to be out there uh, talking to young people where they are. Uh, you know, in 2015, liberals were great at reaching young Canadians. They were, it, this is crazy to think of right now, but the Liberal Party in 2015 was on the cutting edge of using Facebook for campaigns. Right. Nowadays, young people aren't on Facebook at all. Right. Uh, but that's why you need to keep changing, revitalizing your strategies with young people because the strategy that worked in 2015 is not going to be the strategy that works in 2025. Mm-hmm. And the young people who were voting for us in 2015, yes, we've lost a lot of them, but also a lot of them just aren't young people anymore. Right. So if we <laughs> if we think about the people who are young people voting in the next election, they're probably people who didn't even vote in 2015 because they weren't old enough to, or you know, most people don't yeah. reliably vote until they're well into their 20s. Uh, so that entire 18 to 29 demographic, you know, certainly the majority of them would not have voted for Trudeau in 2015, wouldn't have been political uh, when that side of, of Trudeau was coming out. So we need a, a different message to appeal to that that generation. And I think it's a generation that has grown up under the Liberal government and has had some some concerns about cost of living. Right. And, You're the guys in the way now. You're the right. ones who aren't delivering whatever it is that they want delivered. So yeah. If you the, if your goal is to buy a house and you're un- unable to buy a house, then naturally you're going to blame the people who are in charge and you're going to look for a solution. Uh, you know, Some of them are going to the NDP. Some of them are going to the Conservatives. Uh, but we need to be able to show young people that we're making progress on the issues that they care about a lot. Uh, and we have seen recently some big housing announcements from the liberal side that are at least you know, making an indication that, hey, th- this is your priority as a young person and we're doing things and we're, right. we're trying to do as much as we can with as many policy levers as we can uh, to show that we have your back on these sorts of things. I think it's interesting that we talked about Polyev's branding 
and what he's doing and whether how, how he is in the house versus his advertising when I think the media fragmentation though is different in this election and it keeps getting more and more fragmented as we go where I don't I think he can play two characters I think he can do those advertisements and reach those voter blocks that want to see the softer side of them but still throw those bombs in the house because you're reaching different levels of support or different followers of politics uh, so I think the fragmentation quite works for him in that regard I'm not, I'm not sure long term I agree with that though I think right now you're absolutely right um, but I think at some point you're probably going to have to make a decision because people aren't necessarily all paying attention to politics right now but as you get so into you an election it, it campaign it's focused during the campaign well people are going to be paying attention to everything he does during an election campaign Right. so if he has a media availability two weeks into an election campaign is he going to be the fighter or is he going to be the family man Right. and you can't necessarily be both those things at all times so if people are actually paying attention to him on a daily basis, then they're going to see whatever side he is presenting more. Uh, so you kind of do have to eventually make the decision. But right now, I, I think absolutely. They're, they're basically A-B testing this. They're trying to see which audiences it resonates with. And they're trying to build kind of that brand among different groups. Um, but to an extent, at some point, you have to you have to make a decision. And there's going to be one brand for a political leader during an election campaign because people just become so much more tuned in and so much more aware of what's going on. Right. Um, one thing that really uh, interests me in all of this as well is I can't recall as big a fight like this with a Polyev and a Trudeau, two very solid communicators going toe-to-toe. Uh, again, I, I will say Trudeau uh, has been quiet for the last while, but once he steps up and we've, he's beaten us three elections in a row, so he's very capable of doing this. So I think we're going to – I think we're in for an historic – epic fight over the next couple of years. Um, and I, I'm trying to think back to when there was another type of fight like that. There's obviously Harper versus Trudeau in 15. Uh, but before that, when you actually had a, a, a real epic fight, it might have been Pearson and Diefenbaker, like those two storied characters in, in Canadian politics. Because usually, you know, Harper had Dion and Ignatiev and Martin, which weren't you know, it wasn't, wasn't quite epic, and Marumi didn't have much uh, of an opponent run, and Kretchen certainly didn't either. So it feels like we're at a really historic time, uh, and it's going to be very interesting to watch and observe this, um, and fun to do. You and I are both out of the game, <laughs> and now observers, and now able to watch and, uh, and, and comment and talk about it. Uh, but I think it's going to be fascinating to see how this unravels over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Justin Trudeau is an exceptional campaigner. Uh, I think people have underestimated him at their own risk. He's shown that he can close in a campaign, the last three campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, really good at, at the last few days of a campaign, really good at going out and talking to people, showing that he listens to people. Uh, that is his style of leadership. And, and among liberal voters, they really like that about him. Uh, and that was certainly a very strong contrast with Harper, who I agree was a, a strong candidate. He was a, a, a very impressive political figure. But definitely a different type of brand. Yeah. And now what we're seeing coming up is is a fight between two people who are, are very good at retail, yeah, are very and, good and at communicating their message and, and uh, talking to people where they are. And, and Polyev uh, is a, a political animal that we haven't quite seen before. Like this guy was elected when he was in his early 20s. Uh, he's, he grew up in parliament. And, and I mean this complimentary where he really understands the cut and thrust and campaigning and going out there. And I do believe he is authentic in many ways when he's when he's uh, when he's speaking. But it is uh, it's, it's he's playing his own character the way he's delivering it and uh, his slogans and how he's pushing it. This guy is has been in politics his whole life. 
so that's a unique thing too. You should don't you know you have different leaders with different backgrounds. You know, as we always say, Trudeau was a was a drama teacher. I know it wasn't actually a drama teacher; it was just a teacher. Uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole was a lawyer. Um, Harper was uh, was involved in politics, but he was also a, a, an economist. And you had all these other backgrounds where Polyev is a full throttle politician, and it's showing. He's got these skills that are working very very well for him, which I think is going to add all to this uh, epic fight that's in front of us. So look, Alex, if you were on the conservative team, if you were advising Polyev and those guys, what would you do over the next few years? What would be your focus to actually get him over the hump to, to get into that prime minister's chair? Yeah, I think the the biggest challenge I see for the conservatives um, that I'm starting to see them make some steps towards uh, and is a very difficult challenge for the conservatives. It's just that the path towards a majority government is very narrow. Yes. Uh, you've talked about the 40% vote ceiling. Uh, you know, if they can get above that, that changes things dramatically and they can you know, go on to a sweep of the country. Uh, but right now, if they're staying, like you won the popular vote in the last election, you did not win the most seats. Last um, two elections. Last, yeah, last right? two elections. Uh, so it's going to take either a significant increase in vote share or it's right. going to take a, a pivot in messaging strategies to to talk to areas where you need to win seats that have not been won before. Um, you know, obviously Quebec is one where we've seen history of, of uh, political voting behaviors change very rapidly from election to election. So maybe there's a chance for the Conservatives to make a big growth move there, but I haven't seen, and, and I'm not regularly watching To the Monde on Pal and paying attention right. to Quebec media, so maybe he's doing more than I realize. Uh, but at least from a policy perspective, I'm not sure I've seen that that reach to Quebec in a really major way. I know Quebec's, Quebecers are very concerned about environmental issues. Uh, they would not share uh, conservative positions on a lot of social issues right now. I think there's some some difficult challenges and different questions that are being asked to the conservative camp where people are going to have to say, well, do we need to abandon uh, you know, our advocacy for Energy East in order to win more seats in Quebec? I don't know if Pierre Polyev is willing to do that. I don't know if his base will allow him to do that for the sake of winning an election. Uh, but if you have things like that that the Conservatives can do to expand the base in Quebec, then you see more seats in play. Uh, obviously, the 905, generally where elections are won and lost. Uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole was looking good there at the start of the last election, and he obviously came from kind of the area uh, in Durham. And uh, and he didn't win that, that section of the country at the end, and that was... Uh, a real turning point when he started to fall in the 905 that really was showing us, at least in our polling, that the Conservatives weren't going to win that election. But you see things like housing uh, and uh, and you know youth and, and some focuses on some more urban issues that the Conservatives are at least trying to make a play there. I just, every time I see a new election in Canada, uh, even at the provincial level, it's so evident that there's a big gap between rural and urban Canadians. Yeah. The Conservative message is, is doing very well in rural Canada. Uh, you know, I think there's a good chance the Conservative vote total will go up in Atlantic Canada, where the Liberals hold and most of the remaining Liberal rural seats are in Atlantic Canada. And there's a good chance that some of those are lost, but that's not a, a huge seat swing to the Conservatives. Ultimately, to win an election, Conservatives need to start appealing to urban voters in a way that they just haven't been able to break through in the last little while. So that's what I would be thinking about if I was on the Conservative side. And to that point, I think it's about... Um getting that majority does it have to be a majority obviously harper had two of the most successful minority governments in canadian history but i'm i i find politics is so polarized now and uh, the conservative parties moved more to the right liberals more to the left is there a possibility where pierre polyev is a minority prime minister i'm not so sure there is uh, obviously the liberals and the ndp 
um, I think would be would be uh, opposed to it. It's the bloc. It's the bloc québécois that is the deciding factor here. Potentially, um, obviously, a, a hypothetical election outcome. I think I really think it's majority or bust for the Conservatives. I think there's a, a place where the bloc will not support Pierre and what you said about Energy East and pipelines. It's easy. Um, you know, the Conservatives would have to make a deal to have the bloc support. And if, if that's what they'd give up, and I can tell you as a Conservative, there's no way they would give that up. So it's going to be, a, uh, uh, I think, a fascinating outcome there if it's, if it's not a majority. And, you know, Conservatives, again, they could have a plurality and not get to govern. Uh, that's a rarity. It's only happened once in this country, and it was quite this, the scandal then. Um, but I think with the, the way, you know, we've never had a coalition government really other than during war. Um, but now this this uh, supply and uh, uh, what's it called the uh, uh, supply and confidence supply and confidence motion with the liberals and the NDP um, it's already it feels like we're building towards potential future co- actual coalitions in this country I know in in the rest of the democratic world it's quite normal to have coalitions in Canada it's a rarity but it feels like we may be inching towards that. Um, particularly where uh, Liberals and NDP have very similar voter base potentially, and again, the, the bloc, as you said, are more uh, progressive as well than conservative. Yeah, one thing I've learned in my time at PMO is is never uh, bet any money on what the bloc is going to do yeah, on one issue true. to another. Very true. Uh, highly unpredictable. Uh, you know, even even for people who are very immer- immersed in in French media and have been paying attention to what is being said on the ground. Uh, even if I just interrupt for a second, even on like the smallest details, I remember when I was uh, working in uh, on the Hill on a on a committee, and we had a motion going forth. This was during a uh, we were in government; it was a minority. We had the block agreeing with us. Uh, we met with the two MPs that were on the committee, and they were going to vote our way. And as soon as it came time to vote, they flipped with no reason, no no under, never told us what they were doing. And it was just this weird, like, they just did it. They just came up with a different idea seconds before the vote. And I think that, I know that's a, a very small example, but that's where the block are in their, in their, a lot of the way they're thinking is. Yeah, I mean, the block base, uh, the base for the block is very pragmatic. Um, you know, they've elected MPs to go to Ottawa. They don't expect them to govern. They don't expect them to necessarily have big policy wins. Um, but they are trying to make a point and trying to say, you know, we need people in Ottawa who are protecting the values of Quebec and defending Quebecers. So they give a lot of leniency for uh, their party to to make deals, make compromises, and and uh, kind of make moves within the Ottawa political environment as they see fit, as long as the outcome is is to stand up for Quebecers. Uh, and the Bloc have, to their credit, uh, at times done a very good job of, of conveying that message to their base and of, of kind of mobilizing people in Quebec by latching onto some issues where they feel there is an advantage uh, to, you know, throwing some bombs and and uh, and challenging uh, the other party's commitment to Quebec. So, I, you know, I could see a scenario where, you know, if they see that there's something that will benefit them, they will. I, I don't think they would form a coalition or anything with the Conservatives. No, no, they, they might not form they, they a formal never, It's agreement. more just support us in a... In a uh, in a speech from the throne, allow us to take government, more of that sort of thing. I mean, the bloc being a separatist party makes them a poison chalice, right? No one could actually form a coalition with them, which is unfortunate they're in that position. Like, it's too bad there's, uh, you know, for Quebec voters that there's not a Quebec federalist party that you could vote for, like a a federal CAQ that could represent Quebec, but actually work with other parties. Like, we see it in the UK, we see it in Australia. There's different regional parties that fit into the, the mainstream, but when you're ultimately a separatist party, uh, you can't obviously be at the table. 
Yeah, and to go back to your point about coalitions as well, because I think that's an interesting one to discuss. You know, all of our polling when we first started talking about the agreement with the NDP uh, really suggested liberals are you know, absolutely on board with that. I don't think coalition is a dirty word for, for liberals, at least in this country. Uh, well, it keeps you in power, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it helped that liberals felt that the Liberal Party got the better side of that deal when it happened, because uh, obviously they still got the entire cabinet and there weren't a lot of concessions being made uh, other than on policy areas that a lot of liberals really like. Right. Um, so there was, you know, it, there was a sense that the liberals didn't give up much. But ultimately, you know, I think one of the things that separates a lot of the liberals, especially in the liberal kind of base grassroots from other parties, is that it's a little less ideological and it's more we want a collaborative uh style of governance. We want people in charge who are going to talk to Canadians and listen to people and hear different perspectives and embrace diversity. So when you have that kind of ideology as a grassroots for a party, uh, you end up with situations where people just really like it when liberals reach across the aisle. And certainly partisan liberals and liberal staffers are, are a little bit less eager to give wins to other parties. But I think there is public support uh, for more coalitions to be happening, for more cooperations, cooperation especially on the left. And, and NDP voters generally were pretty in favor of working together as well. Right. I mean, liberal voters, you can look at some of the recent polls that have uh, come out with approval ratings of, of the different federal leaders right now. Liberal voters really like Jagmeet Singh. They don't necessarily want him to be uh, prime minister. But if tomorrow Justin Trudeau invited Jagmeet Singh into cabinet, I think the liberal base would be all on board for that. You know, the more right. ideas that we have and, and the more voices from different perspectives that are involved in decision making, the better things are for, for liberals. And, and that's the kind of governance we want to see. But I guess with the first past the post system we have, you know, we're talking about a potential coalition here. Um, at the end of the day, with these two strong leaders in Trudeau and Poliev, I think the NDP are probably going to get crushed in the next election. Like we've seen their numbers drop in the last two elections, probably third, three or four if you go back, um, or three anyways. Um, you'd see their numbers drop. I see though, if it's really if you if you're a, a progressive or a, to the left and you really want to stop Poliev, and the only way to do it is to vote Trudeau, um, then I could see a complete collapse in the NDP. So they may not even be around to have a coalition to be a partner of. I mean, that's the million dollar question right now is because we haven't seen the liberals trying to brand Polyev much so far. We haven't seen that contrast message. You know, we, we both, I think, think we that is coming and it's mm-hmm. coming soon. Uh, and we think that there's going to be a scenario, most likely, where a lot of progressives are a little scared of what Pierre brings to the table and are more open to that strategic voting pitch. But certainly if there was a world where uh, the contrast message doesn't land, uh, suddenly that's a lot more problematic for the liberals and more of an opportunity for the NDP, right? Is if people don't make that decision to strategic vote, we're in a bit of a different scenario where the NDP are not as far behind the Liberals as they have been in past elections. Uh, and some of the change voters on the left might be more open to voting strategically. Now, I think this is not a likely scenario. Uh, I certainly think it's most likely to come down to a, a one-on-one fight between Trudeau and Polyev, and that can, can lead to that sort of thing. But we don't have a guarantee that's going to happen yet. Right. And, yeah. and if, like, Jack Layton did... Not that great That's, for a few elections in a row and then got that upswing, right? Jagmeet Singh has been doing a good job, at least, of reaching out to young Canadians and and building a brand over years. And people do generally like him, which we saw with Leighton. People liked him but didn't vote for him. Now, there's a lot of people out there who are open to voting for Jagmeet Singh. If, if right. they got some sort of momentum, then you know, maybe there fire, could be a scenario. Absolutely. But I just, I'm not sure in an election with Trudeau and Polyev, who are such good communicators, 
that he's going to find the oxygen for it. The NDP seems to be struggling to get attention recently. You know, if you look at Google Trends, people are are searching for Justin Trudeau. They're searching for Pierre Polyev. They pay clo- close attention when they're in the news. Uh, Jagmeet Singh just hasn't seemed to have gotten that general public attention. Uh, and you know, I'm sure NDP voters, if, if we had an NDP person in here right now, they'd be saying, well, the media doesn't give enough oxygen to, to Jagmeet Singh. But sometimes you need to be able to go out and grab that and force people to pay attention to you. Yeah. Uh, and we think, I think we just haven't seen Jagmeet Singh have the, the ability to you know, bring the spotlight onto him for a prolonged period of time between elections. Yeah, and to your point, I mean, uh, uh, fighting on the left vote is Trudeau, who is who's out there, who's uh, obviously prime minister, but also a great communicator. Where Jack Layton had Michael Ignatiev as his opponent on the on the center left, and that was you know obviously a wash. Um, and Layton was able to run circles around him and uh, and benefit from it. And, and Layton did grow into a great campaigner, uh, a bit washy his first few campaigns, um, but it. Jagmeet Singh, I just don't see it. I just don't see, like, I know he resonates in some corners um, and, and push out certain messages, but he doesn't seem to have a full grasp of a lot of the issues. So I think he'll, I think he'll really struggle in the next election. I, again, I could see a, a real wipeout of the NDP. Um, so, yeah. So here's a question. Trudeau loses the next election. It's a minority. Let's say Poliev is able to build a minority government of some sort. Does Trudeau stick around in any scenario? And I know that's probably an outlandish question. You never think of a defeated prime minister, but his father, and it, well, his father res- did resign and then was brought back when the when that conservative government collapsed. Or is history going to repeat itself? Like Trudeau Sr. won three elections in a row, then lost and uh, w- left politics or was about to, and then the conservative government collapsed and then he roared back into power for four years. What are your thoughts on that? Is that is that completely out to lunch? I think it's a fascinating question, especially because his father did that. And we have seen some parallels between his father's time in government and his. Uh, I mean, Justin Trudeau is certainly still young, uh, certainly within the liberal base. He's very popular, uh, you know, maybe a little less so than he was a year ago. Uh, and uh, certainly his brand has been a little tarnished in recent years. But that can change. Uh, and certainly, you know, in a scenario where Donald Trump becomes president, people did certainly trust. <laughs> right. Anything can happen is what right. you're saying. Yeah. Well, people did trust Justin Trudeau in kind of that fight against the U.S. And right. if there was, you know, minority government doesn't last, another election comes along quick. Uh, Donald Trump is a big threat to the South. And we know this guy's already dealt with Donald Trump before. You know, I could see a scenario where if there's a reason to stick around and there's an unstable governing situation, then, you know, maybe. You, can't never, you can never say never to something like this. But I think... There has to be a reason, right? I mean, Pierre, Pierre Trudeau came back and repatriated the Constitution. That was a pretty major thing. That was something to aim towards. That was a piece of unfinished business. That was a piece of unfinished business. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I'm not sure what that is for, for Justin Trudeau right now. He's certainly accomplished a lot of the things that were in the 2015 uh, election platform and that everyone was very excited to do right away. I don't think he's going to leave politics and come back to implement electoral reform or something. I think some of those other things that have been abandoned are done. Uh, So if something presents itself where there's a good opportunity for him to come back and use his skills and and accomplish something that's really major, you know, maybe that would be tempting to him. Um, But I I really don't know what the the motivation would be not to kind of walk off into the sunset and, and... find something else to do, go back to being a teacher or something. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It'd be fascinating to see because, again, in politics, it's all storytelling and narratives, and everybody loves a comeback story. And I know Trudeau was born on Christmas Day to a sitting prime minister 
and uh, a lot of the nation grew up with him or watched him grow up in front of her eyes and there's this real affinity for him obviously I want to see him defeated in the next election and gone as a conservative but it's uh, people do love a comeback story so it's this, obviously his goal is to come back from this massive polling deficit uh, he faces right now but it would be interesting if he does that yeah. I will say uh, Polyev on the on the contrast I think does get two cracks at this um, in the last you know conservatives eat their leaders um, O'Toole had one shot. Andrew Shear had one shot. I was one of the only people actually advocating for Shear to stay on when he lost in, in nineteen. Um, it wasn't until the the spending scandal that he got cut up into um, from party funds that took him down. But other lead, you know, Harper got two shots, which was good. But before that, like we just we throw out our leaders too soon, and we don't allow them to uh, become. Uh, become uh, acquainted with what it's like to be a leader in campaign because it's a lot of work. Um, so I do think Polyev will have two shots if he doesn't um, if he doesn't win this one. Yeah, you would know that better than me, of course. But you know, I, I I'm just a the kind of nerd who gets really fascinated in leadership elections. I think they're very informative of where the bases of, of different parties are. I think it's very clear from the latest uh, conservative leadership election that Pierre Polyev has a handle on the base. Uh, in a way that the last few leaders haven't. Um, right. You know, there's clearly majority support among conservative voters for his leadership, even other over other contenders, which you know previously took a few ballots to get someone elected. Uh, so that is a good sign for him. The other the other thing on that side is that he seems to have ran a pretty authentic campaign in the leadership race. He right. seems to be sticking fairly close, at least tonally, to the way that he. Uh, with some exception of some of the things that he's, you know, showing himself as a bit more moderate on in tone recently, but he's generally the same person that he was during the leadership race. So I don't see a reason why people would, in the conservative base, would have a dramatically changed opinion of him. Of course, if you, you know, lose 30 seats compared to where they are now, then people will start raising some questions. But I think he has a lot more rope than we've seen with past conservative leaders because he ultimately is a bit of an embodiment of the, the conservative base right now. And he's not seen as a compromise candidate within the party. He's someone who who speaks the way that the base is speaking and talks about the issues the base cares about. And, you know, he's one of the base himself. He came, mm-hmm. grew up as a political guy. He understands these people. He's good at mobilizing and, and moving within those circles. Uh, I think he's going to have a lot of leniency to to be able to do whatever uh, the Conservative Party feels they need to do to, to win an election and still give him a second crack at it. He's a young guy. I'm certain he wants to stick around for the long term, even if he loses an election. So I don't think he's voluntarily leaving. And I think uh, I think people give him a couple of cracks. Yeah, I think he's very authentic in, in how he conducts himself. And I think that goes a long ways. And at the same time, uh, you know, if we lose the next election, if conservatives lose, and if there is some major mistake he made on the campaign, that'll certainly be reflected. But at the same time, like I think that's one of those things. Leaders need to learn from their campaigns and, and grow from it. So I think it would be, uh, obviously, we're, we're looking way ahead in the future here. Yeah, but the one uh, thing that I felt hurt uh, both Sheer and O'Toole is that during the, during the campaigns in 2019 and 2021, one part of the conservative message was that Justin Trudeau is is weak and he's not a very good leader and he's not very capable and you need to get rid of this guy because he he's just incompetent. Yeah. Well, if your if your argument is that we ran against someone who's incompetent and we lost, then it's a lot harder to say. You know, that's it. <laughs> we and, can grow. We can do something better. So if Pierre Polyev goes really hard on that, then maybe there's a chance that his base will say, "Well, he he couldn't even beat this this terrible candidate. Maybe we need to move on." It's a very good point because our members hate Trudeau so much. 
and they don't understand why we don't beat him. Why they, you know, everyone they talk to hates Trudeau too, right? They think everyone in Canada hates Trudeau, which obviously isn't the case. Um, so that impacts their, their thinking. So when we fail to unseat him, um, it looks like we just can't do it. So we got to move on. So that's definitely a, an issue. Yeah. So what do you want to, what do you want to talk about the campaign? How do you want to get into that? Oh, we should, we should talk about our roles, I feel. Okay. <laughs> But I lost. It's not fun. Okay. All <laughs> okay, right. Well, I've got I've got uh, a way to start this actually. Okay. Well, do I you was, want me to set it up, or you want to go? I mean, I can set up something here. I, so I've been uh, I've been looking a lot at AI. Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of polling at Spark. We're looking at the different ways that people are doing polling around the world, and the U.S. is doing some really interesting things with with AI ad testing, which is a whole other conversation that is that is really fascinating. Uh, but I just out of curiosity before I came in here, I, I went to AI, I went to ChatGPT and I asked them to describe a day in the, the life of a conservative national campaign director. Oh, wow. Okay. So I want to see if this is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think it definitely sounds like your tone of voice. Uh, <laughs> so let's see, I'll read this out. Okay, we've got, uh, well, let me give you a glimpse into the whirlwind that just hit us on the campaign trail. I was here at party headquarters orchestrating things from behind the scenes when all hell broke loose. First, our candidate's tour bus was hit by an unexpected roadblock, quite literally, when a parade for the local salsa festival blocked the main route to our next event. <laughs> Picture this, our campaign bus stuck behind a conga line. We were all chanting, can't we just salsa our way to the next rally? Seems pretty accurate, right? <laughs> Uh, then during a visit to our local bakery, our candidate tried to demonstrate his down-to-earth side by baking cookies with the locals. Let's just say his culinary skills weren't quite up to par. We had burnt more cookies than good ones, and I thought, we're in a real cookie quandary here. Uh, and if that wasn't enough, we had a minor tech meltdown during a live stream event. Our social media team was pulling out their hair trying to fix it, and we had to reassure our supporters that the technical difficulties weren't a metaphor for our campaign. But you know, as they say in politics, you've got to roll with the punches, and we sure rolled our way through that chaotic day. So in the end, it was just another roller coaster day on the campaign trail. We're not allowed to let these bumps de derail our mission. That seem accurate? That's pretty well bang on. <laughs> I think I had a couple of days that were just like that. Uh, but look, yeah, look, the, obviously in the last campaign, you and I were on uh, on opposite teams and in, in very uh, interesting roles, um, seeing everything that was happening in front of us. Um, and I, you know, obviously, congratulations on winning that. Um, it was a uh, it was a heck of a fight. There were times there when we thought we were winning, um, and then it uh, unraveled at the end. COVID is what we picked up on, and I know you've said uh, guns was a big issue um, previously to me. Um, what do you think really turned that campaign? Like th this again, backing up, this campaign started. You guys called it early. Uh, you were way ahead in the polls but you had no plan for the first couple of weeks or didn't feel like you had a plan. Maybe your plan was to wait for a few weeks um, and then start campaigning. But those first few weeks, we went out there. We, you know, we, we, we sensed the campaign was coming. We had our plan uh, ready and we unleashed it. And uh, our leader, uh, Aaron O'Toole, I think did a really solid job those first few weeks really delivering that message. And the polling showed, like we were, we were way behind at the beginning and then we took a good lead into the campaign. Uh, our modeling had us uh, 1.20 seats up over you guys. Um, we can debate that, whether how accurate that was or not, but we felt uh, good with it. Um, and then to us, COVID, the last few weeks, spiked everywhere. Uh, Jason Kenney, three or four days before the election as Premier of Alberta, shut down Alberta again, went back into lockdown. Uh, the Globe and Mail had a story the, the Friday before Election Day uh, saying all conservative candidates refuse to say whether they're vaccinated. Uh, and it really, those last three days became a co really heavy COVID messaging. 
Um, and we knew from our own supporters, they felt that we didn't take COVID seriously enough. Um, but from what your perspective, where do you think the turning points were in that campaign? Yeah, I mean, COVID was definitely a losing issue for the Conservatives in that campaign. So I'm I'm sure that had a bit of an impact. Is certainly something that was weighing on people's minds a bit in the background from the start of the campaign. But as cases go up, that becomes a little bit higher profile. You know, I think there was from our end, we were seeing two real clear turning points. Uh, one was one was in Quebec. It was the English language debate right. in Quebec uh, really took away our chances of a majority in a lot of ways because. We were doing well enough. It looked like we were going to win maybe 10 more seats in Quebec, and we were trending upwards, and then uh, our momentum got kind of slashed, and things went backwards and in Quebec from that point. And that's because the block got an angle to run on, right? The block that... got an angle. The ballot box question in, in large parts of Quebec became more about protecting Quebec and who was standing up for Quebec, which is the ideal ballot question for the block. And they probably would have found something else to, to make right. that they issue more profile. They do every election almost, right? They always find something to They're gr- quite good at that. Volunteer. But, I mean, there was the one election where they didn't, and then suddenly they had four seats because yeah. the block are not necessarily as relevant to, to Quebecers and to changing people's lives when that's not the issue people are thinking about. Um, so that one obviously was something that threw us off in Quebec, but in terms of the conservative liberal fight, yeah, I think guns was ultimately the thing that we were seeing that was changing things the most. And it was not something that if you ask people, what's your, your top priority issue, right. people aren't necessarily going to say guns is the top priority issue. Uh, but we did a lot of focus group testing. Uh, we tested our ad that came out with Bill Blair holding a big long gun and talking about, or well, there's a stock photo of someone holding a big long gun, and yeah. Bill Blair came and, and gave yeah, a voiceover. Yeah, himself. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, in the 905, that was certainly very compelling. Uh, people are very worried about those t- sorts of things, and it was not necessarily people's top priority. But then when you when you talked about Aaron O'Toole's position on those things, uh, you know, first of all, you know, reversing the assault rifle style gun ban was something that was very negative uh, for Canadians. And then he flipped on that, and he got seen as a bit of a flip-flopper, but right. that wasn't as negative a frame. You know, People can vote for someone who is a little flip-floppy, uh, but they, they really can't in a lot of places vote for someone who is pro-assault rifle or seen as that way. And so even after he was kind of seen in focus groups as a bit of a flip-flopper on that issue, when we brought up other proof points that in the past he had been very associated with firearms and he had said things that were very pro reversing this legislation. And actually, we tested you. Uh, we went to Me. focus groups and we said, yeah, you're an O'Toole's <laughs> campaign manager. He worked for the firearms lobby. Uh, it was actually really disqualifying for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, I don't I don't think we really used it that much. I mean, it certainly is opening a can of worms to start talking about staffers and stuff on the yeah. campaign trail. But it was something we knew, obviously, you had that background. Uh, and it was something when we, br- we brought it up in groups, people were like, oh, the guy pulling the strings is his top priority is guns. Right. Uh, so suddenly people were like, well, this is this is what truly does motivate them. And it became disqualifying because people do associate that with kind of a U.S. style of conservatism, especially in kind of suburban areas where they feel, you know, people were saying in focus groups, you know, I normally vote conservative, but if this is the type of conservative who prioritizes assault rifles and that stuff, does that mean that they're also against abortion? Does that mean they're also against gay marriage? Right. It fits the narrative of the Republican Right. It it made O'Toole look like a lot less friendly version of conservatism. Uh, And so in key areas of the country, especially places like the 905, and we saw, you know, BC, urban BC tended to turn towards liberals at the end of the campaign as well. Uh, I think that's something that made a real difference. We were really seeing people's opinions change in focus groups and and their voting behaviors change from being conservative voters at the start of a focus group to saying, I'm going to call my family and tell them that this guy's scarier than we thought and we need to vote for the liberals this time. Right. It's interesting if you look back at the history of it, how Aaron became leader of the Conservative Party, firearms were a big part of it, right? Where 
the liberals government brought in an order in council banning all of these uh, these firearms a week before our membership cut off uh, so the the all of a sudden there's a huge spike in conservative party members uh, in that last week, which is always happens in a leadership race. There's always a, ma- a major spike, but our campaign, the leadership campaign, was heavily polling and researching the members, and we got the new membership list uh, a few weeks after the cutoff. And I was doing the polling, and the top uh, in Quebec, the number one issue, like we asked people, why did you join the Conservative Party? And someone say they like the candidate, they've always been a member, uh, or firearms. Firearms was overwhelmingly the number one issue. It was over 50-some percent of new members, thousands of new members bought on this one issue. So we had this research, and it shows you the importance of researching in campaigns. And I don't think a lot of campaigns do it well. And we immediately sent a letter to all new members in Quebec about our position on firearms. And we were able to uh, pull in uh, so much support. And it was funny because the other campaigns in that leadership race weren't catching on to that at all. And it was like almost a month later when they finally realized, wait, all these new members in Quebec, like firearms is an important issue to them. Uh, and that changed the uh, their messaging, but they were way behind the ball at that time because they weren't doing the research we were doing. Yeah, that was very interesting to hear. I think it was very evident watching from the outside that you guys had some sort of research on that. I think our, our opposition research team definitely appreciated the amount that the conservatives, that Aaron O'Toole was talking about guns right. in the leadership race. I think this stands to kind of a, a bigger problem facing conservatives these days. Uh, you know, in order to win a leadership race, people don't realize how far right the conservative base is these days on on right. issues like that. To win a leadership race in a close contested leadership race, you have to talk pretty vocally about issues like that that are disqualifying to a lot of people in a general right. election. Uh, so I think Aaron O'Toole ran into that problem. Andrew Shear ran into that problem. They had to move right, and not just move right in general during the leadership race, but move right specifically on a handful of issues that are particularly bad for conservatives to fight on in a general election. And that's one of the things that was interesting for Polyev this time, because during that leadership mm-hmm. race that he went through, uh, mandates and, and, and anti-lockdown sentiment was a big thing that was important. Um, and it was disqualifying like in 2021, if the conservatives were anti-mandates or uh, anti-lockdown, we would have got slaughtered in that election. Uh, but in the next election, that issue's gone, Potent- very likely gone, unless we have another flare-up with COVID, which God forbid. Um, but right now, that issue is gone. So Polya was able to run on those issues that seem to be removed now. Like if the liberals try to attack him as anti-mandate or lockdown, I don't think anyone, I don't think it resonates anymore. Uh, would you agree with that? Am I wrong on this? Yeah, I think his team did some very smart things during that leadership campaign. And they had the advantage of being ahead from the start in the polling. Like, I, yeah. you know, looking at the polling data, looking at how the last few leadership races going, I don't think uh, it was a real serious consideration that someone else was going to win that race at right. any point. Uh, he, you know, Internally, they should have known that they were headed towards a pretty comfortable victory. So they had the luxury of, of not having to talk as much vocally about some of these issues that are a bit more dangerous to them. Uh, and it looked like they, they identified that they had to look, they had to talk about something to mobilize the base, something that was going to energize them. Um, but they made the very conscious choice, I'm guessing, to talk about COVID and COVID mandates under the assumption that by the time the next general election comes along, the ballot question will not be COVID. So having a, right. a further right position on an issue like COVID won't necessarily come back and bite you. But being far right on abortion, on gun control, on those sorts of things is something that is always going to be a problem for conservatives. So if they made the the decision to choose that issue as the one that they kind of throw meat to the base on in the short term, and it seems like they've been pretty quiet on some of those other issues that have gotten past 
conservative leaders in trouble. You know, I think that is potentially very smart. Now, if, of course, if we have another pandemic or if COVID cases go way up and things get shut down again, it becomes a ballot question again. You know, Pierre Polyev is in a lot of trouble because right. he's staked out a position right. that is offside <laughs> with most Canadians. Yeah. But, I mean, he is gambling that that won't happen. It's probably it's, a safe bet that we're not going to have another... Uh, and, and, well, there's 100 uh, years between pandemics, right? Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. And at the same time, if, if it does flare up again, I, I don't know how much Canadians will be... Uh, Will will have the same positions they did two years ago on that, right? Like I, I think people are, uh, we went through it, and some will question whether we needed to do that. Um, so I, I think he's got he's safer on that ground as well. Yeah, and especially running against Justin Trudeau. I mean, if it becomes a an election about crisis management or an election about healthcare, that's trouble for the Conservatives anyway, because those are the those are the things that well. Healthcare in general, less so right now, but uh, you know, health crisis. Justin Trudeau has got a lot of credit for. You know, some of the times when Justin Trudeau has been most popular uh, in our polling, when when I was working at PMO, or when we were dealing with Donald Trump, when we were dealing with a pandemic, when we were dealing with global crises, uh, you know, he was able to step up in those situations, and people really appreciated his leadership and his steady hand on that. And he has experience doing that now. So if people think that there's an unstable situation in the world, if people think there's a crisis going on that needs to be managed, you know, he has kind of staked out a position as someone that can be trusted on those sorts of things. Uh, you know, it took a lot of work to do, and the government right. did do a very good job at managing this crisis, as most Canadians would agree. Um, you know, That's the type of thing where if that can become the ballot box question, things get, get troubling because nothing Pierre Polyev can do is going to convince people that he's as good at managing a crisis as, as Justin Trudeau because... Pierre Polyev hasn't had to manage a crisis on the national scale, and he won't get that opportunity until he is prime minister. Right. And I, I think, and I'll finish with this, I'll say the next campaign is going to come down to whoever tells the best story. And right now, Polyev is out there telling a story where Trudeau is not. And it reminds me, the 21 campaign, when you guys started it, I talked about for weeks you guys were, there was no story you guys were telling. You didn't even say why the election was called, right? You just called the election. And there was an opportunity there to tell a simple story. If you go back to 2008, Harper wanted to call in the election. He want, his minority government had been super long, and he wanted to go. He went to, and had a meeting with every opposition leader and said, hey, what, is there a path forward for us to work together? He didn't want the answer to be yes. It was a negative. And then he said, oh, we have to have an election. If Trudeau had done that then, uh, you could have had a story, we need an election because we need a new mandate. This parliament doesn't work anymore. And I just, right now, if uh, you know, just to wrap this up, the next election is going to be decided on who is the best storyteller between Polyev and Trudeau. And right now, Polyev is the only one telling a story. And if Trudeau doesn't pull this together, um, then this next election is already over. He can, you know, run on what he's done in the past, but if he's not going to say uh, what he's going to do in the future, he's toast. Yeah, and this is going to be a little bit of a, a tangent here, but I think ultimately, if the Trudeau government falls, one of the things that I would look to the most is, is staff turnover. Uh, you know, frankly, in 2015, people were very excited. There was a lot of youth supporting Justin Trudeau. I remember when we had our first internship program on the Hill, there was like more than 40,000 applicants for people to come from all across the country and, and work in offices. There's so much talent coming in. Most of those people have left at this point. That's just a, a natural thing in politics where turnover is high, but you know, people should be doing things to manage that sort of thing. Um, but right now we're in a situation where there was this generation of really talented liberal staffers in 2015 who led that election and, and were a big part of the reason uh, why Trudeau won. I, I'm from the school of thought that 
political success is the sum of a lot of individual decisions that are being made by talented, experienced, creative, trained people. Uh, and you need to have that that kind of background and basis uh, in order to win things. And ultimately, even though there's a lot of great people still working for, for Justin Trudeau, the generation that came in back then is is largely leaving at this point, eight years on. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if there's been enough professional development and, and investment in the next generation. And, and very importantly, there's no liberal provincial governments to recruit talent from. That's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so every time someone leaves the government, it's not clear how you replace that person. Uh, so when you're looking at some of these things like long-term strategic decisions and, and that sort of thing, you need to have people coming in with new ideas, new ambitious thoughts about how to how to tackle different challenges. And you need to be training and empowering people from within to grow to fill those those senior roles. What, 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 every, can, what every political party needs to do is hire a professional HR person to build these 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 programs. Um, I know when uh, when Aaron was was leader of the party when we were hoping he was going to be prime minister. One of the things we talked about we were going to bring in an actual professional to oversee this stuff because the way you political staff are not trained. They're not given any. They're they're you know they're they're people who work on campaigns who who are interested in either policy or pol- or politics and they come in or communications and they come in and they're given these positions but they're not uh, they're not supported in any way and every party has this issue and whoever figures that out and actually has a good system I think could really really uh, do very well <laughs> uh, long standing but none of the parties have done that yeah I, I could not agree more I think that is the reason why most long governments who have been in power for 8 10 years why they fall uh, and it is, it's it's crazy looking at this from the inside and thinking th- this happens over and over and over again. But every time a new government is elected, it's an entirely new group of staffers. A lot of them don't have any management experience. They're coming in and figuring this out on the fly. Yeah. So if every government is making the same mistake and they, you know, the government burns out and loses their talent and disappears, and they lose after eight years. It just happens over and over again, but people don't realize that problem is coming until you've been in power for five or six years, and then suddenly it's too late to fix these things. You've already lost a lot of talent. Uh, so I, I'm a huge, huge advocate of having you know, management training, having ch- training for people uh, who are coming in as, as incoming staff, you know, onboarding packages, regular training throughout the year. You know, it can feel tough when you're always dealing with crises to be able to say, okay, everyone needs to, you know, go offline for an hour and learn about this type of training that's going to help you do your job better, but it pays off in the end. Uh, and you, it leads to, you know, more talent making better decisions in a crisis down the road. Uh, but it's ultimately, it's, it's something that needs to be, you know, long-term planning is always something that's, that's underdone in politics. People don't commit enough resources towards that part of long-term planning. A huge part of long-term planning needs to be empowering, helping, supporting the staff, and then also just providing a positive workplace environment for them. You know, making sure people don't get burned out, making sure people have mental health resources on the Hill. You know, I did a lot of staff surveys in government. We would identify groups of people who are more at risk of burnout, which burnout is a big issue on the Hill. But we found especially like people who were working more than 55 hours a week, which is pretty common in politics, had been on the Hill for less than five years and were not socializing you know, more than five hours a week with people. They were at just astounding levels of burnout. They're so vulnerable to that sort of thing. And then that group of people became so much larger during COVID because everyone was suddenly working from home. They weren't able to socialize with others. A lot of people moved to Ottawa to work in politics. So they didn't have those support networks locally. And then they couldn't build them during COVID. So people were stuck at home working 24 hours a day, stressed out about this sort of thing when they needed to Well, on, to on, on the opposite chill, side of it, they for us, have on, the opportunity. on the conservative side, we had to deal with the fact we, Aaron O'Toole won the leadership during 
the pandemic. Everyone's in lockdown and trying to build a team uh, like that where you couldn't even meet with people. So it was it was, it was certainly tough during that time. But uh, look, thanks so much for coming in, Alex. Uh, Alex Kohut from uh, Spark Insights. Uh, awesome chatting with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this is all on background, right? 100% on background is off the record between you and me. No one will listen into this at all. So. All right. Hey, so this was the first episode of On Background. Thanks for listening in. I have uh, Carl Belanger is going to join us next week. He's a, a new Democrat, an NDPer who worked for Jack Layton and Thomas Moclair. And he and I are going to role play a bit. We're going to pretend we're liberals and we're going to talk about whether Justin Trudeau should go or not from the perspective of the Liberal Party. I think it's going to be spicy. It's going to be a lot of fun. And listen in next week. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you want to reach out to us as our... At political people, we like to get voter ID and research. Uh, email us at onbackground at ipolitics.ca. Love to hear from you.